Greetings, friends. Welcome to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. On this show, we're back with part two of our summer gaming diptych in the company of Ted, aka Ted and Carmen. Ted writes extensively on his blog about various gaming and other topics, but most pertinently, to this podcast at least, the Stormbringer RPG. Last time out, Clarkie, Dave and I talked about a sandbox approach to gaming in the million spheres. We follow that up today with more gassing and more musing, this time about approaches, investing players in their settings and themes, and Ted's blog posts about fixing certain elements of the Stormbringer RPG, as well as factoring in the cosmology into storytelling. And naturally, we talk about a few other bits and pieces too. So, sit back, relax, prepare a draft of whatever your poison may be, and join Ted and I in Derry and Tom's as we chew the fat about Moorcock, gaming, and pretty much anything else that crosses our eyeline. Ted, lovely to have you in Derry and Tom's. I noticed you just took a sip of something, and as it's now (laughs) one minute past midday, and the sun is past the yardarm over here in Bradford, West Yorkshire, I'm just going to quickly crack something try not to pop the microphone when i do it welcome to derry and tom's it's lovely to have you on board thanks for having me cheers we popped into each other's uh mentions or what do the kids call it i don't fucking know anyway we're on twitter (laughs) and we've bumped into each other and you have your own blog tomb of ted and carmen and there's lots and lots of stuff on there about mocock and particularly about the stormbringer role-playing game which I'm sure we will get into as we proceed, because I was absolutely fascinated by all of your posts labelled Stormbringer Redux. Mm. You notice and... the more posts I make, the bigger word gets on the side. And <laughs> in the past couple of months, just the word Stormbringer is getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. And so if you're looking for Stormbringer content, it's probably a good place to go. <laughs> yeah. Although I've got some thoughts about how to navigate your Stormbringer Redux articles because oh, yeah. I, I am going to make a request that you put them in a lovely long back-to-back thread <laughs> so, so it's easier to read through them. But that's only because I found them in the first place and I found them so fascinated and I wanted mm. to read them all in order. Yeah, so right. I'll just have a well, at some point, I'm is. going to be putting it all out as PDF. Mm. And uh, I, I have an idea for, to sell something on RPG.net. Uh, or what's it called? RPG Now. Uh, yes. But it's it's this is just a preliminary phase. I mean, of the project. So. Mm. Well, there's enough interesting content there to have me absolutely intrigued. So that's it's a a great starting point. And I think for anybody who enjoys the Stormbringer role playing game, particularly the old Gonzo versions, the earlier more Gonzo versions, I think there's <laughs> lots and lots of great content there. Just for listeners, perhaps who are wondering what on earth we're talking about. Back, um, it might have been 2020 now, we did our first Moorcock and RPGs episode where Lars, Phil and I talked about Stormbringer 3rd right, Edition. I heard that, yeah. Yeah, um, and Ted, on his blog, has got lots and lots of very interesting observations and hacks and fixes 
for the Stormbringer role-playing game, which not only make a great read, but actually mechanically, there's lots and lots of really cool little hacks, I suppose, is the modern game in parlance for mm. these kind of things. But before we get into your blog, how did you come across Mocock in the first place and what made you a Stormbringer gamer? Well, I mean, you go back to the, was it late 80s, early 90s? And uh, I, I got out of high school and I became a literature major for want of anything better to do and not really realizing like how unsaleable a literature degree actually is, <laughs> <laughs> but enjoying enjoying the the uh, attention of uh, the fairer sex and the long hours just lying on a bed reading books, mm. and of course I ran into Moorcock and uh, you know a lot of this other stuff that you read kind of at that age and fantasy was just kind of languid or kind of lamp lacked a lot of oomph. And Moorcock uh, just had this oomph to it, this just, uh, you know, the, 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 the lyricism and the plot. And it, it was just, there was a there was dynamism in his writing. And uh, you probably read on my blog, I just reread Epic Pooh, mm. his, uh, his diatribe against uh, J.R. Tolkien. And, yeah. you know, I, I read Tolkien too. That's what one of the things you go through. You go through Tolkien and you, you spend like a month reading Tolkien. Mm. And then you go, shoo, I never have to read that again in my life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whereas, yeah. you know, you, you find yourself, I found myself, I'm 51 now, coming back and uh, going online and finding overpriced copies of the old books I used to have that I sold yeah. in, in flea markets 20 years ago and stuff that, and it's really, it's only been the ten, past 10, 15 years that all this stuff has taken off because I, I still remember being 10, 15 years ago, just seeing secondhand bookstores just lined with more cuck stuff for, for a buck or two bucks. Yeah. And the old role-playing games were also going, you know, $10, $20. And then something just happened. Like everything went online and, and secondhand bookstores died. And I think people started realizing uh, the value, not the inherent value of, of, of Moorcock's fiction, but as something collectible and saleable. And that's that's the sad thing now is it's become a collector's edition. So mm. I just spent uh, uh, maybe 500 bucks just rebuying all the old games and stuff I used to have. Yeah. So it's it, I think the world is slowly catching up with us who were – in the vanguard yeah. of, of Moorcock fandom, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, yeah, on, on Epic Pooh, we've talked about that on a couple of occasions. Talked about it with one of your fellow countrymen, Rob, a.k.a. Mannion, who lives... Uh, oh, yeah, lives, down the road in Kyoto. Yeah, just down the road, yeah. And we talked about wizardry and wild romance with Dirk the Dice last summer. And we, again, went into Epic Pooh in, in a little bit of detail, but really just kind of more observations on Moorcock's observations on Tolkien himself, because mm. I'm one of those people who I think there's a, sometimes there's a strong Moorcock versus Tolkien kind of thread, a little bit of competitiveness, right. but I'm one of those people who actually, I'm quite happy to enjoy both. I, I do like a little bit of Tolkien. I probably haven't read any for, I think the last time I read any Tolkien was probably 15 years ago when for the first time the Silmarillion actually clicked for me right. on my on my third attempt. <laughs> You've got to have a lot of free time and energy to yeah. <laughs> to sift through that stuff, right? Yeah. You've got to be in the mood I, I, for that. Like most people, I read Lord of the Rings probably at school and then thought, ooh, there's a prequel. And I noticed a tweet from Neil Gaiman the other day, which has been in equal measure attracting a little bit of heat and a little bit of um, recognition from people, in where he said that um, the Silmarillion for him wasn't the prequel right. he was looking for <laughs> at the time, although he does go on 
to say that he appreciates it and appreciated it further on and that this new Rings of Power TV series is the prequel that he wanted when he was a child. So he's talking up the, the Rings of Power series. How much of that is because he'd love Prime to give him more TV shows and how much of it is he's being absolutely genuine? I don't know. I quite like Neil And how Damon. much of it is, is his sensibilities is not the same as the average viewer. Absolutely. So it's going to tank because maybe he'll like it, maybe I'll like it, and but the people are going to say, ah, there's you know there's too many women in it. And one of the things I liked yeah. about Tolkien is you go back to what what was her name, Erwin or whatever she was the uh, you know the writers of of Rohan, the, yeah. the daughter Erwin, of, yeah. of king, right? Yeah. And what I liked about that is that she was just like, yeah, I'm going to dress up as a soldier, and yeah, I'm going to. And I just thought, wow, you know, if if I was running a game of Lord of the Rings, or if I was writing fan fiction, or you know, if the the dream is getting hired to write a sequel or something, I would make <laughs> yeah. that part of their culture, right? Because yeah. that that's just a little throwaway bit of the book. And she gets neutered at the end, like she's she's just about to take on a ring wraith when I think Mary Mary or Pippin or someone hops in front of her and takes the blade, and mm-hmm. so she she has this this moment of of a woman doing a heroic action. So I think you know Morcock calling uh, Tolkien a crypto fascist. I think he's over, <laughs> overstating the case a bit. I think Tolkien yeah. had probably had some good ideas, but he just he you know he was he was a linguistic guy. He wasn't you know he he's all about rules of language and syntax and semantics and stuff like that. Yeah. So he's dry. He's just just by nature. Yeah. Uh, and the, but you know he he had enough wherewithal to have this shining moment for a woman mm. in a, a book that was written so long ago. So I think I think. Uh, if uh, whoever it is, Prime or whoever, if they're going to Rings of Power and they're going to lean into that, I'm on board myself. But I, but hmm. you can see a lot of grognards and and just kind of incel types saying, uh, you know, women with a sword. Uh. Mm-hmm. They don't mind having a picture of a half naked woman with a sword on their on their walls, but they don't want to read about it or see it in a show, right? Well, uh, you know, w- without wanting to get overly political, I generally think fuck those <laughs> Every guys. life is political. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have I have absolutely no problem whatsoever with people of color being in my fantasy. And it doesn't bother me in the slightest. And uh, like dwarf women without a beard is not a deal breaker for me. <laughs> yeah. No offense. You you know, know. I would probably have more respect for a nerd who complained about that than complaining about a black dwarf or a black hobbit. <laughs> you know. <sighs> anyway, there's there, there's a rabbit hole. And, it's a deep know, rabbit hole. I was about to say that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't mind being called a leftist or work by some fucking right. weirdos in some basement somewhere it didn't bother me in the slightest <laughs> yeah so i'm actually quite looking forward to rings of power it might tank it might suck it might be like because you can never tell right no, you can't just you judge can't. on the politics you 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 can't just judge on another artist saying well i liked it hmm. it's uh everything like it, it's better these days to not hear any media about whatever hmm. you're interested in go in fresh and I have a friend who refuses to, to to anything about a movie he wants to see. He refuses to click. He refuses to read. And he goes in with these fresh eyes. And he enjoys media a lot more than the rest of us do who have looked up the spoilers and who have heard mm. them. So I think I think this kind of digital age, we're too connected. And half the voices we're hearing, because I, uh, I teach media studies at a university here, and the, mm. the media is kind of my bag. Half the stuff we're reading is like engineered to create content, to create division mm-hmm. and get more clicks. And so it's better if you can go in just totally fresh to whatever you want to see and just, just go see it on its own merits, right? Yeah, I think that's a very wise policy. And yeah, clickbait contaminates absolutely everything. And right. you just just doom scrolling Twitter alone introduces you to far too much clickbait. Sometimes it's <laughs> deliberate, click, deliberate clickbait and other times it's just people having weird arguments. Um, yeah. You know, good luck to them. I think... 
you know, when it comes to people's criticisms of Tolkien and Mocock's criticism of Tolkien as well, and the observation you made about Eowyn, I think that there are all sorts of deep literary analyses on these things that are far smarter than I am. But when I look at these things, you know, Mocock was certainly in his 20s and his 30s a vehement critic of all sorts of things and on into his 40s and onwards. But in many ways, he was um, a little bit pretentious and a little bit up his own ass uh, in, in quite an entertaining way, to be fair. But when it, when it comes to Tolkien, he was, a, you know, th- there's always that argument, is somebody of their time? And yeah. when somebody creates a piece of art in their time, it's inevitable that people 20, 30, 40, 50 years later are going to have some handle on it, which people who love that source material will indeed um, take issue with. We found that ourselves. The, the new generation can only find its voice by trashing the old generation yeah. and distancing themselves from it. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing, that hasn't happened to, to Moorcock because everyone's grifted and robbed Moorcock and, and stolen his ideas. Mm-hmm. So I think we're lucky as Moorcock fans that there hasn't been a movie or a TV show because if they made it, it how could you live up to, A, how could you live up to the source material? Yeah. B, everybody, like... I play with some younger people who haven't read Moorcock and you're 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 doing stuff and they're like, Oh, this sounds like Drizzt Dorden's like no Drizzt Dorden from D D is a copy <laughs> off Elric. Yeah. yeah. Oh Rune Swords, that's from this is from The Witcher. No, The Witcher is a copy off Elric. There's so much of the mold was broken by Moorcock mm. and, and nobody's come and broken that in a way that Moorcock did. Yeah. Since it's all just been like grifting off and chiseling off Moorcock for like forty years, right? Yeah, the first episode of House of the Dragon was broadcast. Was it earlier this week, last week, whenever it was? And social media, certainly in this kind of circles that Moorcock fans move in, is aflame with memes making comparisons between <laughs> um, the Matt Smith character and, you know, the Targaryens in general and how basically they are a gigantic ripoff of, of Mel yeah. and and the, the Mel bit. God. The dragon been, princess. I, there you go. Yeah, I've been. I think we're forty-four episodes into this podcast, and I still fuck up Melna Binian um, when I'm trying <laughs> to say it. A stumble of my own tongue. But yeah, and and ultimately, every time you see something like this, it puts another nail in the coffin of a potential movie or television series adaptation of Elric. But at the end of the day, is that a bad thing? Probably. Yeah. Not. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah. I prefer. I prefer to have a theater of the mind. Yeah. That's, and when I when I role play it, people are like, "Oh, let's get out the minis and the yardsticks," and I'm like, "No, yeah. no." Yeah. You know, in f- first first edition of Stormbringer, there was no there was no uh, movement characteristic, yeah. and there was a reason because those guys were coming off reading yeah. the source material. But when you get to like later editions, there's like, "Oh, your move is eight, and here's some minis," and it, like yeah. Games Workshop really they they did that. They you know third edition they took over and they put out this like cheaply bound third edition with everything together and it fall like people who have an hour everyone's <laughs> yeah. like glue, taping the spines together and shit yeah but it's it's got like an ad for minis in the middle and to me personally this is just my uh aesthetic or whatever uh like minis is the last thing i want to play in like an elric based game yeah citadel miniatures did do some really really nice <laughs> mocock miniatures but paint them put them on your mantle play absolutely piece, look at them i don't want to move i don't want to touch them <laughs> <laughs> no, when it comes to gaming, I've been gaming since I was, I think, I don't know, 12. 
11, 12. I was, I was certainly at junior school in Hull the first time I ever got invited to, to play a game. My way in was, like a lot of people, I think fighting fantasy books, fighting fantasy game books, and then somebody said, come and play Dungeons and Dragons. I think it was first edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. But even then, we never played with miniatures. Never played right. with grids. Yeah, no. So I've, I've never graph been paper, invest- graph paper and pencil. And that's about it. Yeah, never been invested in in that style of playing. <laughs> and a few years ago, a, a very good friend invited me to take part in um, Pathfinder playtest, <clears throat> and we played in a games cafe for about seven or eight hours. It was a very pleasurable experience. I had a really good time. The guys who were doing it were really good guys. But it was all grids and figures, and I found it whilst it was entertaining and it was sociably satisfying and the gaming aspect was fun it didn't feel like a role-playing game to me it felt like a a series of combat encounters and it was more like it was more like kind of strategic or tactical fight simulations and it was fun in its own way but it didn't feel like a game to me i always say to people who push that in my in my games i always say it's like how many meters to the orcs i'm like how the fuck does an elf know how many meters right yeah absolutely Meter, meters were like invented by, and so you know if if i if i ever wrote a role-playing game some people have said to me you should roll a role-playing game you know the distances would be a bow shot mm-hmm. a step right and like i think they do a disservice to themselves like we're fantasy but you know you can move 3.9 meters around mm-hmm. and like give me a break right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've I've often had a a discussion with with people that I've played with. If I've been running a game, for example, where they get into that mindset about a game where it becomes a tactical situation, yeah, and my position is always the adrenaline is roaring. You haven't got time to measure distances between here and there. They're just out of reach. They're just the other side of a car. They want me to drive. Uh, they want me to draw a map, for example, of where everybody yeah. is and where everything is. It's like no, that's that's no, not how no, adrenaline driven no. combat works. It's hell for leather, it's yeah. blood, it's slipping in guts, it's nearly shit in your pants. This is what it is. It's visceral, it's fast, it should be over in five minutes. Before, first, before I went to Japan situation. for the first time, I was in a big bar fight, too, against one. And <laughs> after, after I went to Japan, and I, you know, I, I got my short rip, I got a bloody lip, but the two, two other guys uh, came off a bit worse. Yeah. And I went to Japan, and I started karate, and I got a black belt in karate. And the thing is, if you're thinking, how am I going to block this? But it's too late. You're going to get that punch in the face. Yeah. Your your training, your body takes over. Like, how many centimeters away is he from you? Like, who who cares? Like, all I'm doing is just just letting my reptile brain take over, and it's survival, fight or flight. And so when you get down to this nitty gritty of movement points and action, look, and it's all game stuff. And I think what we're really talking about here, Andy, is a change of genre. Mm. We're talking about a change of genre from literary to gaming mm. and when you talk about reception the, the people who are gaming you got different you got people like you and me who are on the literary side like yeah i want to i want to play in that fictional world but i want to play true to the rules of the fictional world someone else is like oh yeah this is just like the other game fart quest that i play with you know <laughs> we bring out we bring out the meter rules and everyone has 400 minis in their closet and those yeah. are two totally different perspectives and two yeah. totally different habituses you're bringing to the experience and of course you know uh, you know the big thing for me is i remember back playing in the day i'm sorry i keep bringing it back to the role-playing thing but that's kind of the 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 gig i'm on now is people who had read moorcock there's no encumbrance system in the first uh iterations of stormbringer and people Mm. who had read moorcock were like oh you know i'm taking a sword and a dagger that's about all i can carry i think 
And people who hadn't read Moorcock were like, oh, I'm carrying nine broadswords because swords break in this game. And <laughs> yeah. you're like, no, you're, you, you, you've totally lost the spirit of what we're trying to do here. But yeah. they're, you know, they're coming from D&D. They're coming from all these other things, right? I think you're absolutely correct in that there is that difference in stylings between forms of fiction and gaming mechanics kind of represent that. But even in the most literary fiction, I've never come across a fight scene where the protagonists plan things out in meticulous detail. And I think once once a, a fight... Well, if you have, you threw out the book and called it a piece of shite. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. And I think a fight that takes place in five minutes of real time should not take 90 minutes to simulate in a game. <laughs> it just shouldn't. And and I've been in no. scenarios where, where that's happened, where a failure... <laughs> Uh, what would have taken place in a fairly quick space of time actually takes 90 minutes to play out. Oh, what have you got there? I'm fascinated. This is a Ordeon beer. It's beer made in Okinawa. Mm. It's a light beer because Okinawa is an excruciatingly hot and humid chain of islands in the south of yeah. Japan. And uh, on a hot day like today, nothing like this will quench your, your, thrust, your throat mm. and quench your thirst. It's just... And I'm not a beer drinker. I don't really drink too much beer. I'm, I'm more of a, a girl drink drunk, as we say in Canada. <laughs> and uh, so I was drinking, before that, I was drinking a Chuhai. Chuhai is from Korea. It's fruit juice with like a vodka or grain alcohol in it. So this is oh, my nice. drink of choice. Yeah. It really, it really cools you down in the hot Asian summers, right? Mm. Well, as I'm in Bradford, and I think it's only about 18 <laughs> degrees today. We did have 37 degrees a few weeks ago when we had a heat wave, but it's a it's a relatively sedate 18 degrees. But I have made something of a mistake in my <laughs> drink selection. Well, oh, no. actually, I, I, actually, I didn't make a mistake. I, I thought I had um, because I've I started off with uh, a millionaire milk stout by the Wild Beer Company, which is uh, a fairly tender 4.7. Uh, salted caramel and chocolate stout and i did think is that a little <laughs> bit heavy for one minute past midday but i've had no lunch so i may as well combine <laughs> the two things and it's not quite a so beer is like a slice of bread so there you yeah. go and yeah. it's funny i remember the first podcast of yours i listened to and i've got to i've got to catch up on listening to them because they're, they're excellent they're really wonderful i really love the way it's just two or three of you and your mates just sitting around mm. riffing it just reminds me of being back in university and and in a bar and riffing about these things and like girls coming up like hi what are you guys talking about yeah we're talking about fantasy uh okay see you later <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i remember you yeah. guys that because because i heard all your accents and i thought yeah these are some real grotty good salt you know salt of the earth british people it's like yeah well i'm drinking a caramel uh candy stout and i was like what the hell are they drinking you guys were drinking all these candy beers and i was like oh my yeah. god to be fair they're not the best beers i've ever drunk in my life but Loz and I egg each other on with these things, and we just have a terrible, terrible habit of trying to challenge each other. Right, right. And and because I kicked this off, and the first ever episode we did properly was with Loz, who I've been friends with for a long time. Right, 30, okay, yeah. 30 plus years. And when we get together, because we live in different cities, when we get together, we can't make a choice between do we game, do we podcast, do we drink, we do some combination of the three. Yeah, yeah, nice. Usually it's drink and game or it's drink and podcast <laughs> or maybe all three over the course of an evening. Um, so that's really why we just kind of slipped into that into that habit. But you'll find, you know, sometimes there's no drinking involved whatsoever. I think that's probably the most hardcore drinking episodes of possibly be the ones with Natasha, with Tash, when we talked about okay. dueling the skull. I, I have to catch up on all these, yeah. Yeah, I think some people have found that a selling point and find it entirely amusing. Other people have thought it just degenerates into a lot of drunken rambling. They can piss off. 
Yeah. If, <laughs> and if, if we land somewhere in the middle of those two poles, then, you know, mission accomplished. I'm now going to crack my second one, which is um, another probably far too chewy one for a lunchtime. It's uh, a Lot Lomond <laughs> Brewery Scottish Tablet Stout. So let me just... Now, I'm a big off. apple cider... From the UK, I'm a big apple cider man. And uh, ah. when I was in university, they, they were... Uh, what is it? Uh, Bulmers were just—they were going to mm. stop selling. Uh, uh, what's what's the big cider? Strongbow. They're going to stop Strongbow. selling it in North America. And me and my friends started up the Strongbow Lovers Association of Canada, <laughs> really? and we 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 sent them tons of emails, and we we even made up a song. Strongbow, the drink of champions. When I'm having one, you're always there. When I'm having fun, you're always there. Strong. We made up like twenty. Like I think I made up most of it, and we sent yeah. it to them. And then Bulmers decided not to give up on Canada. And now nice. anywhere you go in Canada, there's Strong Bowl. And it's in, in there's the you know, there's now it's a twenty five year old website and my my name's a Strong Bowl Lovers Association of Canada found founder member. <laughs> that is a raw flex of power. Flex it. Unbelievable. I, I wish I had as bold a cl- booze related claim as that. That is pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. The, but the I'm only not claim a big I've yeah, the only claim I've got to Forgotten Ciders is there was one in England called Copperhead. And okay. going back about 25 years, maybe even longer, when we used to go in a rock club in Hull, we always used to get absolutely shit-faced on Copperhead. <laughs> but I don't think I've seen it for 20 or more years. And we haven't actually done a Challenge Insider episode, so, or a Challenge Insider accompanied episode, so maybe that's one for the future. Yeah. Found the books. Booze aside, going back to a point you made earlier on, so you're gaming regularly, you're playing Stormbringer with younger folks who perhaps don't know Mocock. How do you, and this actually goes back to a conversation we were having um, the last RPG conversation we had with Clarky, but how do you go about selling the Mocockian kind of ethos and um, features of that kind of fancy tale to a whole new audience who only understand modern frames of reference like The Witcher? Yeah. Well, bring it back like 25 years ago when I was first running Stormbringer and people didn't last long because the the lethality just drove them away, mm. okay? And here's the thing, the fiction, like the fiction, Moorcock decides who dies and when. So it's really hard to emulate that in a game. Like if you roll a fumble and you cut your own arm off, which happened in one of, one of my games, <laughs> You don't feel very more cocky, and so that's why yeah. one of one of my house rules kind of nerfs that in a way that gives you more choice. Because mm. the whole thing to me about the the Moorcock ethos is, when you get screwed up or you died, it's because you you made those choices, mm. and that to me that is the central pillar of role playing in, in Michael Moorcock's worlds. And it's not about be oh I'm in the Young Kingdom, I'm going to buy some souvenirs and take a picture with Elric. No, mm. it's about you make these choices and you can fuck up yourself or the whole world, right? Mm. Fast forward uh, in this past year, I found this wonderful Discord. It's called uh, it was the Impossible, uh, the Whis- the Tentacle Whisperer of Impossible Secrets. It's this great mm. Elric uh, Discord and a lovely bunch of chaps. Most of them are all from the UK. And they're all living in Switzerland for some you know f- weird reasons. They're they're just yeah. lovely chaps. And so there's three types of gamers. There's Moorcock fans who are just thrilled as punch to have a barbarian from the Weeping Wastes riding to the Laughing Tower, which is, which is I, I made this adventure called the Laughing Tower. And uh, it was this like gambling hall of chaos where you could get all mm. 
you can you can either get messed up or get uh, powered up. And uh, and then the second tier was people who were gamers who just we just want to game we just game all the time. These guys are gaming four or five days a week. And uh, and then the last was these young people who are just young gamers who've never read the fiction. And the people who've read more who are there for the Moorcock are make are just whatever overarching story you have, they're just pushing it ahead. They're like, we want to see where the story goes. Whether it leads to our doom or not, we don't care. Yeah. And the people who are gaming for gaming are like, oh, my character needs to do this to get my goal going and to get me to the next level. And like levels really don't matter in, in a mm. more cocky. Maybe social rank matters, social status matters. But they're 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 kind of they're trying to play D and D in Moorcock's world, yeah. which I mean that's a bit of a different thing. And then the young people are just like, "Do I have to read the the Elric books to get into this?" And you're like, "That's probably a good idea. Mm. You might you might consider reading those because your your whole reason d'etre is to start your own shop and, mm. and become rich and retire. Whereas I'm I'm giving you these story hooks about traveling to a plane of shadows and meeting these tattooed face people to get your curse lifted and you're going yeah but you know i really want to start my apothecary and it's like okay <laughs> yeah. we're we're at, we're kind of at cross purpose because when they role play you know they're they're they're, they're role playing amazing role playing hmm. but it's because they've only they played lots of fifth edition D&D they're they're so mentally bound by i need this to level up they're they're not like what, what the central pillars of the Moorcock experience ported from the genre of literature to a game mm -hmm. should be one, you know, your choices decide your fate. Mm -hmm. But two, there's a larger struggle going on. And it, the thing is, if you just want to follow the pulpy, if you say to me, I just want to play a pulp game because Moorcock was influenced by the pulps. And you have a character like Moonglum, who's pure pulp, who's like, hey, you know, all these uh, these jewels that fell off the Book of the Dead Gods, we can go and party. So yeah. a pulp, pulp character starts off poor, gets rich through after an adventure, and then next week starts off poor again, right? Yeah, yeah. And But then you've, then you've got the next level, which is the whole society. And the society is the only people who have names in, in, in the Alric books are nobles. <laughs> hmm. Very few people who are not nobles have names. Everyone is like sailor number three who fell off the yard arm. Yeah. And got eaten by Piare, right? So there's that so it's it, in D D they used to call it the domain game. And D D kind of gave up on it. But that's it. D D got that idea from Moorcock, I'd say. Hmm. And then the last thing is a cosmic struggle. And there are, the worst about it is that as if you're if you're a Moorcock lover and you're you're running the game, you want things to impact on the on the cosmic struggle. And the problem I have now with Stormbringer after running it for six months is that there's absolutely no mechanics. There's absolutely no rules for the, and that's that's what I want to publish and, and sell online is rules for the cosmic struggle, how your character can get the social power because the only people who can influence the cosmic struggle are emperors and kings. Mm. So if you, if you have the misfortune of rolling up a beggar, there should be a system that, well, if you, you look at the theocrat of Pantang, the only reason he can talk with with the lords of the higher worlds and stuff is because he rules a nation. Every other mm. priest is just shut up and do your thing, right? And the average person is is like a gnat, is like a fly 
to the lowest yeah. of the higher worlds, right? Yeah, and this, and this so is one of the points you made. These in your things, blog, these are it? not emulated in the games, and mm. I'm at I'm at the point now after running Stormbringer for six months and saying it does some stuff, and I and I've made it emulate the fiction better with my house rules. But if you wanted to just play pure pulp, you could uh, somebody put out a fan edition of Stormbringer with the uh, Barbarians of Lemuria rules. If you're just playing pulp, go with that. But if you wanted to play like Companion of Champions, if you wanted to play real Morcock, use, do you know Ars Magica? Mm. Ars Magica is a game where one of you played the main guy and the rest of you guys were just grogs. Yeah, it's like a troop, isn't it? Right. Um, I, I read Ars Magica about 25 years ago, but that's my memory of it is like creating a kind of a, a troop right. approach. And if, if you read Sailor on the, uh, the Sailor on the Seas of Fate, mm. that's mm. what it is. It's like, here is all the... Uh, incarnations of eternal champions and here's the b rank schmoes that go with them and so what you have to say to players is like okay one of you guys is going to be the eternal champion and the rest of you guys are just the schmoes the cannon fodder are yeah. you all good with that and i think a lot of modern gamers are going to say no i want mm. everyone wants to be the hero everyone wants to be special now but the great thing about Moorcock is that actually, if you use that approach the person identified as the eternal champion nine times out of ten is a fucking useless mook <laughs> you know and it's his, it's his companions or some kind of deus ex machina that actually gets him out of trouble so mm. i think i think that troop approach would work perfectly well and people wouldn't necessarily feel disadvantaged in play they would only feel disadvantaged by their kind of conception of right so one of us is some kind of cosmological hero and the rest of us are just his shit kicker sidekicks i'm not really game for that but actually in play i think it would play out very very differently if you followed a more cocky and path I mean, obviously, Elric's got his super sword and Coram's got his hand and his eye and all that business. But, you know, there's, there's still that's, those situations where they get themselves into severe bother. And half the time he comes up with companions because they save his life in the first place. But then they get, they get when you get to a certain point, they're expendable. Mm. Oh, and yeah. the eternal champion is not, right? And so mm. a lot of, a lot of, we read a lot about Moorcock. He is. His fiction is responding to neoliberalism and Thatcherism and, and, and stuff that's actually going on in society. Mm. And he's saying, you know, just too much law can, can be just as bad as too much chaos. Mm. We need to balance it. And, you know, he was, he was raised as a child amid the ruins of post-World War II. Yeah. Part of the reason he hated Tolkien is Tolkien is saying, you know, Green and Barrett, the war, you know, we'll, we'll get through this. And he's saying, no, you know, standards are falling and, and Western civilization is slipping and you know, Prince Gaynor is always like, uh, when you go to the Quorum Chronicles, where the, you know, the, the second series of Quorum, mm. uh, where, you know, the Lords of Law and Chaos are gone, like the big names, superpowers are gone. And now it's just all these like little grotty outsiders who are taken over. And that, that's, that's kind of like the post 1970, post war world, right? Mm. And, uh, and Quorum says, Oh, Gaynor, are you still, what are you doing working for these like Foy Moyor? And he says, You know, you know, standards have slipped and you have to find work where you can. <laughs> that's right. Right? Yeah. I mean, that, that that's a great yeah. line. Yeah. And I th I think, uh, what was the point I was making? Sorry, the beer's kicking in. What was my point here? We're shooting the breeze, as the kids would say. <coughs> uh, but you, you made a point earlier on when you were talking about kind of the cosmological concepts. And one of the problems with the Stormbringer role-playing game is that it ties it into too much into theology. Yeah, yeah. Theology, and, cosmology, not the same thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's largely as a result of Stormbringer probably being bolted onto RuneQuest to some degree. 
and and taking on board a lot of the. the, the I would say, in a more in a larger sense, it's it's porting this well-written, cosmologically based fiction mm. into uh, a game, and a mm -hmm. game just cannot model the cosmology, or or no one's tried to to model a cosmology like that. Yeah, uh, and and so. And people coming from D and D, they you know they want oh am I law or am I chaos? Am I good or am I evil? So it's just easier mm. to, to just give everyone a theological bone, yeah. And it just lets them play that way, right? Yeah. My concept of priests and churches in anything Morcockian is that largely they're just tools to bend people to the yoke of whatever overwhelming power is running that region. Priests right. of spells, priests of power, any of those things. But I think that's more difficult for, for gamers who, a large proportion of whom want to be powerful or spell users <clears throat> or any of those things, whereas generally, certainly in the, in the young kingdoms, who actually wields magic? Elric, the theocrat, and Thaleb Karna. Nobody else wields any magic. Nobody else has demon boots of sprinting, or, right. or, or any of any of that weirdness. And everything, everything people say about magic, you look at Devim Tar, and he's saying sorcery. Elric is a knife that stabs you as you stab the other person. Yeah. And then Elric responds, "Yes, you must never use sorcery." And then he goes back to, "Ah, he goes back to his chanting." So he's being a real in modern terms. He's it's a dick move. He's saying. Yes, I agree. Sorcery is really terrible. Give me a minute. Hala, la, la, yeah. Strasa, yeah, yeah, yeah. come help yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, but it serves me right now. But but I suppose the elemental stuff is one of the interesting things about the Young Kingdoms in that it's it's just a, a way of communicating with something that's part of the natural world in the Young Kingdoms. You could view it as innately magical, but actually it's just they are a force of nature, and if you have the ability to actually communicate with them, they may or may not do you a solid if you can what, what i liked about the old storm, stormbringer rules in that respect is with the elementals and with the lords of, of chaos and the beast lords they don't give attributes they don't say you know eric has 100 hit points like dnd would hmm. they say eric does this and he can do anything and just don't fuck with him and and with the elementals they say, oh they can do this and that and the only way you can kill an elemental is to like kamikaze it with an elemental of an opposing alignment hmm. and i like that i think they should have leaned into that more yeah you, you you make um three points you split stormbringer into conceptual into three concepts in one of your blog posts and one of them is chaosiumisms and right. the idea of a stat block for something which should just be un, unspeakably and unmentionably powerful is a, definitely a chaosiumism and that goes from one extent being you know um how good a dancer is diving slalom what's his dance skill um all, all the way <laughs> I remember through you saying to, that. yeah 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 all, all the way through to having a stat block for cthulhu in call of cthulhu and having uh, an entire section of a book and now chaosium i mean they are beautiful books you've got the reprinted completely rewritten malleus monstrorum beautiful beautiful book but do i want a stat block for a flying polyp yeah. Do I want a stat block for Azathoth? No, it's absolutely pointless, but it's one of those old chaosium-isms that actually, to some extent, I know people like it. Some people really, really want a stat block for Cimmeril. Yeah. Why? I don't know. Or Dr. Jest. Why? I've no idea. But if they want to do some kind of level of comparison between their strange torturer butler and the one from the books, okay, fair enough. But, but I don't see it particularly as useful. I, I think I remember hearing Sandy Peterson, who, who made Call of Cthulhu, he has a really, very wonderful 
YouTube channel. And I think I remember him saying that we needed to show people they're getting their money's worth. Mm. So we made these huge stat blocks. And if you look, if you go back to like OD and D, original D and D stat blocks were very short mm. for monsters and stuff. It was like AR, HP, attacks, XP, treasure type. That's about it, right? Yeah. You're gonna you're gonna have to edit out all these verbs here. But uh, <laughs> in like Chaosium had just like these two paragraph stat blocks, which is getting close to third edition D and D bloat. Mm. And I think it was just a mark. They felt that we have to we you know we have to give Devorm Slum seventy percent dance. Because they say, he, you know, in one scene they say he's in the dance. And you don't need to do that. And one of the worst things is when you're running Chaos or running Elric or whatever, you have to just say, okay, now I got to go through the whole monster catalog, that, that 30 pages, mm. and I got to boil it down to like one page because it just bogs the game down, right? And yeah. to get to Call of Cthulhu, look at the color out of space. It doesn't damage you physically. It doesn't do hit mm. point damage. It just fucks your world up. And yeah. so in one of my blog posts, which I don't know if you've read, but I said alternate damage for Call of Cthulhu. So no one should be doing hit point damage, mm. right? Instead, this guy hits you for every point of damage you age by that many years. This guy hits you and it it shrinks you, shrivels you up and you lose points of strength. And like getting hit for five points of damage, you just kind of go, okay, well now it's my turn. I'll shrug back. But it's like, okay, you get you get hit, your arm shrivels up, and you lose five points of dex. You're going to go, holy crap! I'm going to run away. And you know, Call of Cthulhu and Elric shouldn't be about. I'm going to stand here and fight. And when's my next attack? It should be like, mm. how do I get out of here? And every time when you see Elric in the novels, when you read it, and he's he's uh, he's fighting humanoids, he barely pulls through. But mm. when he's fighting a beast, every time he fights some sort of beast or monstrosity, he needs sorcerer's help or he needs friends to help because mm. he's just overmatched. Mm. And so like one thing they did right in the games is is beast stats just like blow people. It's, it's not, whenever you see a bear or whatever, in D&D you say, oh, it's a bear. Oh, hey, that's 25 XP. Maybe I'll go kill that bear. Mm. But in Stormbringer you see a bear, like, well, there's no XP and that thing can, can rip my guts out. So let's wait till the bear goes by. And I, that, yeah. that kind of, it gets there. But like, to get back to the Cthulhu references, like, if everything in the Cthulhu mythos is doing HP damage, then you've misunderstood something about the source fiction. And in terms of gaming, replicating that that terror of the unknown and the fear of what's going to happen to me. Oh, it's another Bayaki. Oh, they do two die six damage. Yeah, but mm. is that hit point damage or is that going to age you or is that going to shrink you or is that going to reduce your intelligence? Oh, okay, crap. Because one of the big things they had to nerf in original D&D was uh, level draining. Level drain, yeah. Right? And they don't have that anymore, apparently. Oh, I can remember and, being bitter about level drain when I was thinking. But you should have been bitter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it should be something that, that makes you think twice. And there are so many times in, in uh, the Elric novels where, or in the Morcock where he's about to get into a big battle and he says, instead of doing that big battle, I'm going to summon in the Warriors of the Dawn or I'm going to call mm. the Warriors from the, the Eye of Quinn or whatever, right? Because... Yeah. This head-to-head -head battle mentality, its this is not the way, right? I think that's one of the problems I always perhaps had a little bit with the Dungeons & Dragons mode of playing, the Dungeons & Dragons style of... Murder of, hobos, um, yeah. Yeah, um, and, and also the games were essentially funnels. Dungeon crawls were funnels, and if there's a vampire that has level drain as, as part of your funnel, you don't really have that much of a choice of how to bypass it other than just simply to go in the opposite direction unless you get a really really super creative bunch of players but by and large they would derail the dungeon master's intentions by spending a four-hour session on planning how to 
derail the dungeon master's plans in terms of you know populate a dungeon with with that kind of you know creature or villain that's why i think dungeons and dragons has, has never necessarily been my thing although well, i had the, a lot of fun the, the whole adversarial of let's try and get the dungeon master yeah that that's to me that's not the way the way is i have got an incredible story cooked up and your job is to to fuck with that story and to not only for your own gain, but in a way that your character would do. And let's just see where it goes. So yeah. I, I made this rule about characters having backgrounds and having something they're trying to do. Are they trying to find love or or kill an enemy or whatever? And so that's this we call it intrinsic motivation in education. Mm -hmm. And it that that's so much better than me telling you, oh, hey, the king is giving you 100 gold to go and slay this. Who cares, right? Mm. None, of that, none of that stuff matters. It's all this extrinsic, you know, this unimportant NPC who doesn't exist. Mm. It's giving you that's gold. Why, yeah, that's why I'm very thankful that the, the Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition game, which which I ran, and I, I must say, I am quite fond of, of Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition as a product. It's very pleasing aesthetically. I like some of the options in it. I would never. I've never been a hardcore rules nerd anyway, so I'm always fairly loose with that angle. But I was really, really pleased that when when I ran that game, for the most part, the players were not seasoned gamers, and they ended up, you know, palling up with a kobold tribe rather than murdering them all and stealing their treasure. Yeah, you know, and and and, and creating real role. But that's how it was back in the seventies and eighties. It's just yeah. like, you know, do we bribe them? Whereas now it's either like, do we fight? Or do we fight? Whereas it was yeah. like, do we bribe them? Do we run away? Do we? And I just remember playing a game back in the eighties where, uh, you know, it was a TPK. Everyone died. Yeah. And we had we had saved our money and bought like a compound bow. We went back the next day and like the orcs or something were using the compound bow against us. And I thought, ah, oh, that's brilliant. You know, it's and it's not like they didn't have the plus one sword locked away. They were using that plus one sword. And if you want, if yeah. you want that plus one sword, you better go get it. So if you're going to do D and D. I think that's the right way to do in D&D, &D, but um, mm. that, then again, that's not Stormbringer, right? Some of the same concepts I would, I would apply if I ran a Stormbringer game. It's like everything's there for a reason, but actually it's how you interact with it that defines the outcomes. And I never as a GM want to get irritated because somebody won't kill an obstacle I've put in their way. If they want to make friends with it, have a dance-off, have a poetry yeah, off, yeah, yeah. do any of those little things, I fucking love it. That's that's what I want. And and the Thursday night group that I game with, if I ever tried to set up, uh, if I ever tried to run a game with them where I wanted to meticulously recreate a Mococcian atmosphere it would all go horribly wrong because they'd want to set up a holiday camp. You have camp. to know your players. You have to know your players. Absolutely. Their motives would be, we must set up the first holiday camp in Jarkar or yeah. something ridiculous like that, which is, <laughs> it's horses for courses at the end of the day, isn't it? And I think that's something we have to remember that when we're massive Mococ fans and we want to run a Mococ game and we want, you know, I want to run a Stormbringer game, I want it to be really Mococian. If your players defeat your intentions and, and, Nobody's and having feel fun. like no, you will you're be You're not having fun. They're not having fun. Well, they might be having yeah. fun actually making you tear your hair out. And I remember years ago, I ran yeah. a second edition D&D Celtic campaign. And I said, you know, it's kind of based on Corm. Uh, but I said, let's let's just lean into the Celtic. And so the first session was just, you know, you're all young warriors. And so you've got to play games. And all it was like chariot races and wrestling and all kinds of funky stuff. And just yeah. like little trivia roles. And they, they were like... This is the most amazing D and D, and the sad thing was, the sad thing was, none of it was connected to D and D rules. 
right? And so that, that you know that there's something wrong with the rule set you're using when you're having great fun, but there's absolutely nothing connected. Like you might say that actually that's a strong point is that this is outside, this is just pure role playing. But the problem is when everything is pure role playing and, and, and GM fiat, why are you even using this book, right? Yeah. Is absolutely. there like, and I, I'm in, I'm in a Facebook group called, uh, I'm begging you to play another RPG and it's people who hate D and D. And all they do is they say, God, why is why does everything need a, a 5e uh, adaptation? Why does everything need to be 5e now? Yeah. And then they, they really, they push for these little indie each.io and all these like independent uh, creators and there's a big LGBTQ component of them. Yeah. And there's some amazing, fun, indie, crazy games out there that just like hone in on a niche and just fucking do it to perfection. Yeah. And I, I think there's I think there's there's a growing kind of discontent with the old mechanical styles of role playing. Just kind of like, wow, now I can like totally hone in on I, I ran a game called uh what's it called? Lasers and Feelings. Andy, do you know Lasers and Feelings? No. It is but I'm, it's I'm instantly interested. It's it's one page, it's free, and you only have an attribute, lasers and feelings. Yeah. And so but if you, it's, I think it's a scale of one to six. So if you choose lasers five, you'll have feelings only one. Yeah. So what you do is whenever there's a problem, you either tackle the problem through lasers, like science technology or feelings talking. And so it's, it's this one page, you, you got to Google it and download it. And I ran yeah. like a pseudo Star Trek uh, game on it. And it was just, it was just, it blew me out of the water. Just the way it, it, this is a one page game with only one attribute lasers versus feelings. <laughs> and it just yeah. shows you that mechanics, you can have just the simplest mechanic that supports a very deep role-playing experience, or you can mm. have pages, hundreds of pages of rules that yeah. just kill role-playing. I'm this a is... huge fan of rules like gaming. I really like Barbarians of Lemuria. I like it a lot because it's so easily hackable <coughs> and because the, 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 the mechanic behind it is ridiculously simple and you can just change some headings and you will never have to refer to a rule book again you can explain to the players how it works in five minutes and it can be oh you can tell me about that in a second yeah. and it can be as nuanced as you want it to be and i absolutely love it so i, I hacked that to make it a game about german poets in 1795 <laughs> who um, Love the it. first part of the game lasted for about an hour and it was in a, a, an inn called the Moon and Fennig and it was poetry night. And I think I changed the, the core four stats to fighting, loving, something else and something else. And it was it was just so easy. And that's, that's the joy of role-playing games. But I, I do understand people who like mechanics that support a mood. Well, when I did when I did that one session of lasers and feelings, and I said, "What did you guys think?" and and I think you know there was like five people and three people were like, "Man, that was fantastic! That was lovely! That we didn't have to read tons of shit and blah blah blah." And we just made these funky characters and rolled with it. And one guy said it was okay, but for a longer campaign, I want more crunch and more mechanics. And I thought, mm. "Here we go!" So this is the guy that wants the two hundred page Star Trek yeah. adventures. And like, like I'm not dissing that guy. I'm saying. That's there too, right? So that we've got to contend with this whole difference of expectations, this gap of expectations. And to get back to Barbarians of, of Lemuria, as you probably know, there's a Stormbringer hack that was made with the BOL Barbarians of Lemuria rules. Yes, there's been a few. There's been one of the Black Hack as well called called the Black, Black Sword Hack. Cool. Yeah, I read that. Yeah. yeah. 
Black Sword hack is is quite nice as well. Yeah. And originally I was kind of like, nah, nah, it's got to be storming, it's got to be chaosing. But the more I've done this project, I realized that it doesn't matter what you're using, Barbarians of Lemuria or Chaosium, mm. uh, because they really replicate the pulp gaming aspect of it, right? And, and yeah. you might even argue that Barbarians of Lemuria, because it's simpler, is better than that like three paragraph stat block for every damn thing you have to look for, you know, in, well, in, in Chaosium. Right? While all the but, barbarians but of Lemuria. None, none of those guys replicate the domain game. They don't rep replicate the cosmological study, uh, co yeah. the cosmological struggle, sorry. Yeah. Well, whilst I really enjoy Barbarians of Lemuria, it isn't a game I would use for every scenario. And sometimes I do like a little bit more crunch. <clears throat> the most recent one I came across, which in many ways I think it's probably considered OSR, old school renaissance for non-gamer listeners, how would you describe OSR to someone who isn't a gamer? It's kind of a, a, a throwback movement to try and simplify things and make them a little bit more old school, I suppose, is probably the best way of describing it, isn't it? Well, it, it comes it comes out when people just got sick of every new D&D &D edition, mm. just just adding the need to buy so many books and learn so many rules. Yeah. And we're, we're all getting into our 40s, because my blogs started with the OSR and Grognardier and all those blogs. Uh, you know, I was really, I was, I was writing on that energy, right? Yeah. And uh, we're all like, dude, we, you know, we just cannot memorize all these rules. We cannot buy all these books. Mm. And the experience that we had is just so opposite to this this corporate sponsored. Get by the next edition, and D and D has come out with D and D zero now, or mm. D and D one. You you can back compatible with any previous edition, which is pure like marketing bullshit. Mm. And we all we said, you know, let's yeah. get off the marketing uh, teat here and. They, with third edition, they put out this OGL, this open gaming license. And so mm. that means that, yeah, you can't, you can't talk about Forgotten Realms or whatever, but you can use the rules. Rules cannot be yeah. uh, copyrighted. And so everyone was like, okay, well, shit, I'm going to go back. And what was very interesting is they all put out their own first edition in like 1970s, 1980s edition of D&D. But all the rules were slightly different. So you could see how people were kind of making their own rule set that... Uh, replicated what they wanted out of the game. Yeah, the, the one challenge I would throw out there to people enjoying the OSR because it stops them having to spend £100 every six months on D&D products yeah. is that the majority of the people I know really love OSR spend £600 every six months on about 14 different OSR games that come out. And uh, I would count myself to some degree among them because I've lost count of the amount of OSR <laughs> old-school retro clones that I've, that I've yeah. bought just out of interest. I've got no room on my shelves for any Dungeons & Dragons anymore because OSR has taken it all up. Yeah, But I, I do like a game that comes along just with a little bit of flavour in the form of a simple mechanic that when you th when, when you look at it you think well actually i probably could have just done this myself i could have implemented this myself but sometimes it takes someone else to write it down to make it an idea just in the same way that you are doing with your stormbringer redux blog posts and i was reading through sunken lands i not only enjoy the way it's written it was by the same people who did one called beyond the wall which i think tries to simulate more like young adult fantasy this one is very much more specifically focused upon recreating, and it name checks Moorcock as well. The Moorcock Fritz Leiber kind of approach to to uh, heroic fiction, sword and sorcery, whatever. What's it, it called again? Through sunken lands. Ah, and, sunk okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and just silly little things that made me realise actually I really like this game. And one of them, and it's again, it sounds stupid. One of them, and I can't remember what it's called. It's a feat, which means that you're so charismatic that actually you confuse people who are fighting you by just being <laughs> ostentatious, and you can use your charisma modifier 
instead of strength in combat. And I thought it's that extension of the old one, which was, I think, finesse fighting, where you could use dexterity instead. But I just thought, that's so wonderful. And that is so William de Verk, you know, in, in that he yeah. stands there having his ostentatious cough. He's probably got a constitution of seven. He's probably no stronger than the average man, but he's so charismatic, even in combat, that he has significant advantages because he just confuses people by fighting in an orthodox fashion. And I thought... That's the kind of mechanical flavour that I really like in games to try and recreate something okay, interesting. There's, there's a game I'm going to tell you about, and your wallet's going to cry, but you must buy this. <laughs> it's called Swords of the Serpentine. I've got it. Yeah, I've got the. Oh, I, I, yeah, I pre-ordered. Yeah. I w- I did. Did you do the uh, the playtest? I did the playtest. I, I got the playtest edition. I was intending to playtest <sighs> it, but um, we had to cancel. I think three games on the bounce, and I never got round to it. But I did it read the playtest at the time. Wild! It was so much. I was like, and I hadn't mastered the rules. I had to get people helping with the rules because, uh, you know, I have a very stressful job, and I was going through a lot with my family. But I, I did as well as I could. And mm. we did like it was just such like wow this is emulating so much of what I want out of fantasy and and part of it is that combat can be sword or you can yeah. say I'm gonna taunt him and it doesn't mm. matter it's the same and magic can you can you can be hitting someone and it's not like fourth edition where everyone had this this laundry list of friggin' powers mm. and it doesn't doesn't matter whether you were the fighter or the magic everyone had the same the exact same stats but it was just yeah. like mystic mystic uh, mystic blade. And the Iron Blade, it's exactly the same, right? And yeah. it wasn't that. It was just like you had this very uh, good mechanical underpinning, but the window dressing was whatever you wanted it to be. But, mm. you know, if you were using magic in like a, a dark way, fantastic game. And, they, and on the Pelgrain site, they said how to make Elric and how to make Stormbringer. And right. I think they're, they're really, they've done something that will please Grognards and please modern like rules light people and I mean mm. this is why I haven't given up on Stormbringer first edition because it is very rules light and there are things they did in it like when like say if you get to the beggars and I, I know that you, you guys took the piss out of the beggars a lot but there was this rule in the beggars is you only have like what is it 10 percent to hit with a dagger mm. but for every other beggar who's with you you get another one percent so you get mm. 20 beggars together you get 50 beggars together you you're just gonna bum rush somebody right yeah and yeah. I thought wow this is what a brilliant little mechanic. And, they, and like there are places in Stormbringer 1st to 4th edition where these brilliant little mechanics that they just throw away. Mm. And then they do stuff where they ignore the skills and say everything's power times three, you know, constitution of five. And it's like, yeah. stop. Like you've got a skill. You made a skill. Then, then why are you making everything times three times four? And then when you go back to something like the the national you know the nationality list and sure there, it, it is kind of racist that you know people from the hinterlands have very low crappy statistics people from the big cities who are rich have really wonderful statistics and that's something i'm thinking about for the future but mm. y- you get these really flavorful things like you know the more beggars you have the, the more you're going to mess someone up mm. and that's and there when you read the part where elver goes to nad sokar he's like be on your guard because you don't want to get bum rushed by fifty beggars. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whilst we did have we did have a good laugh talking about Stormbringer, we didn't set out to um, to take the piss out of it, but we just we just found it so amusing. And I think because we've had a few ales, um, it just turned into a, a, an amusing conversation. But we had a good time talking about it. But I did run it for a few sessions with some of the guys, oh, who, okay. listen to, who, who guys who listen to the podcast, and we talked about it in a subsequent 
show and one of them did roll randomly a beggar and we had a lot of fun with it and i think mm. i did say to laws during that show that if i ever ran a stormbringer game for laws everybody we would discard random tables and everybody would be a beggar from <laughs> oin because that's my kind of game low-powered shit kickers is the kind of gaming that i like to yeah. run uh, but we've, we've full circled our way back around to stormbringer so when are you gonna get this list of articles compiled and number one where can people find it in the meantime and number two what are your time scales on getting this all compiled into something that people could access as, as one document well i mean part of the reason i i dove into this project is because i'm overworked and underpaid <laughs> uh and you know living in japan is it you know everyone oh living in japan it must be great it's not great it's uh it's the home of work yourself to death. It's the home of, you know, of advanced countries that's got the lowest standard of living. Mm. And because you're a foreigner working here, you do a bit better. So to me, it's an escape is to mm. just, you know, spend a bit of money, buy these old books and, and run games with some wonderful chaps in, in Switzerland or whatever. So the time frame, like this, this isn't my main thing. You, you get people who are uh, putting on OSR publications and that's all they're doing now. And yeah. that's wonderful. I really feel great for them. As some some dude in New Jersey can quit his UPS job, driving yeah. a, a van around, or driving for Jeff Bezos, and can put out his you know his his rule set and his his mm. things. I mean, that's wonderful. I don't think I'll ever be there. So the hope is to finish the mechanical tweaks part this year. And where is it? It's on my blog. And when I finish the mechanical tweaks, I do have a Google Doc with all the just a simplified version of all the house rules. So hopefully put that up as a PDF and just let people mm. may, maybe put it up on uh, RPG now and just pay what you want or something like that mm. and then not expect to get any money. And I think I'm going to put on it, a portion of proceeds will go to Michael Moorcock and try to contact him through Moorcock's miscellany. Because I've always mm. thought that the whole thing where he, apparently he did not get much money out of licensing the role playing, yeah. even though he's had health problems. That always stuck in my craw that mm. I felt bad that, that he, he did so much and they profited so much, like, you know, you know, realistically, you know, to a degree. And yeah, yeah I'm sure he got some money, but if I could say, Hey, I just, I just wrote a check for a hundred bucks to Michael Morkak, I'd feel pretty good with myself. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, so that's, that's this year, this year is just finish up the whole mechanical, the exercise of mechanically making it a better game because it, it is so rules light. That if you followed some of the original, like if you followed the principles that they lay down in those wonderful rules, like the bigger combat rules, and you apply that to other parts of the game, it would be a better game. If you simplified and clarified some of the stuff that, because, you know, it's back, it's 1990 or 1989, whatever it is, it, it's all just like make up the next mechanic. And there's mm. no idea of a unified system or, you know, so clean that stuff up this year. And then sometimes next year. And next year, honestly, I'm hoping for a big jump. I'm hoping, if I can, to go back to Canada or to, to move to the EU and then just take my free time and, and, and do what I think is a worthwhile project, which is to set out some rules agnostic system for the cosmological conflict that, that's at the heart of a lot of Moorcock's fiction and just sell that and say, you know, whoever wants it, wants it. And it doesn't matter whether you're using Barbarians of Lemuria or Chaosium or I wouldn't suggest D&D, &D, but I suppose you could. But just say, mm -hmm. okay, this is this is the rules to 
get your characters involved in the cosmological struggle, but also where does the end game go, including destruction of that world? Because yeah. if, if those are the stakes that, you know, if you're just playing, if you're just playing D&D in Morikak's world, or just playing pulp, that's in the background, but you don't really worry about it. But if you want to get to that, the stakes are, are we influencing the, the, you know, the cosmic struggle that might end mm. in, in the, the end of the world? Uh, I think there, there needs to be a product out there and I don't think there is. Mm. I think it's all just like, let's replicate, you know, what is your sword scale? What's this and that? And it, it's it's replicating reality on a small scale, but it's not replicating that huge fictional universe that, that Moorcock set out. Yeah. And just kind of this this whole idea of the, wor the world is, is coming out of balance. What do you do mm. with the world? And the, the Moorcock's seen that in his lifetime, the world spinning out of control from World War II to Thatcherism. Mm. To, to and now now he lives in Texas and he sees Trump and he, mm. he you know uh, if you read some of his uh, his his posts on Morcock's miscellany or some some of the stuff he says in interviews he's just like you know the world is a lot more chaotic and he he wrote a new Jerry Cornelius uh, mm. uh, novel just the other year and yeah. he did a reading and yeah. it's it's all about Cornelius saying standards are falling like what there used to be uh, you you knew your allegiance you had one side against the other side now it's just like your the tank you're in is made in china and the guns you're in are made in russia but you're fighting yeah. russians and then you know who your your you, your boss isn't the military commander now you're working for special ops and so even mm -hmm. jerry cornelius doesn't know who to fight for anymore yeah. but that's interesting yeah, that the he, president it was excellent yeah yeah and so you know it's just like you talked about earlier. Let's not be political. But Morcock is political. He's he's getting mm. into these these themes. He's not he's not pointing out Trump per se, but he's getting into these themes of of uh, you know the 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 whole the ambiguity of the modern globalized landscape. Let's say whenever I say let's not get political, we always get political, and <laughs> I don't think we should fear getting political anyway. And yeah. one of the things that's not, on the not cards, with this many drinks in us. No, nah, one of the things that's on the cards for this show is we are going to do uh, an episode specifically about. The politics of Moorcock, the politics that surround Moorcock, largely because of a comment that I got that said I gave up on Moorcock when I found out he was a typical leftist nerd. Yeah, <laughs> which, which I thought was really interesting coming from someone. But I think they they, they suffixed it with um, some good ideas, though. And I just thought, yeah, that's a, a really interesting take. But there was this. Uh, I, I'll try to find the link for you. It's it's uh, somebody put up uh, Epic Poo, and all the responses to Moorcock are just talking about how much shite he is and how better Tolkien was. And I, yeah, yeah, I knew he was just like a leftist snob and shit like that. And it's just like, yeah. so you're responding to this critique to a book you love, and you know you like mm. Tolkien, fair enough. But you're not really engaging with the ideas. You're not staying mm. calm and saying, "Okay." If you're stay calm, you can say, "You know, he's overstate. Morcock's overstating the case by calling Tolkien a crypto fascist." You know, mm. so in no way is this little chap in the literature department of where was it Oxford or whatever, who's mm. writing with his friends and having drinks. No way is this guy a fascist. He's just this. He's just this this guy who's burrowed into the superstructure and he's writing his books in his free time, right? Mm. Uh, yeah. But but if you're engaging with us, this you can say, well, yes, he is promulgating. Uh, you know, who are who are the big heroes? The hobbits, right? And so it, it's yeah. it's 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 the you know fight the Jerry's by keep your job going or what? It's that old like war aesthetic to keep people from panicking in the face of annihilation, basically. Mocock was ahead of his time in a lot of ways, and I think one of them was clickbait. And an epic poo is. 
the perfect <laughs> Epic example. clickbait, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the perfect example of pre-internet clickbait. And mm. it still it still brings out a reaction in people now. But we'll talk about that on a future show. But right. you know what, Ted? Thanks for coming on. It's been a Thanks real pleasure talking yeah. to you. I really look forward to being able to access all of your posts in a, an easily digested <laughs> manner. But there's all sorts of great... All you need to do is look at the tags on your blog to see how much stuff that you've covered over the course of writing right. this blog. And I'm going to be diving into some more of it. And I will Cheers. I will um, link to it in the show notes. But thanks for dropping by, Darian Toms. Thanks for having us. Look forward to having you back on in the future. All the best. Cheers, man. Have a good night. Massive thanks to Ted for joining me and Darian Toms. I really enjoyed our chat and, once again, and the same happened when Rob, a.k.a. Menion, was on, I'm left fascinated by and needing to try some of those Japanese tipples. I've had wasabi Kit Kats already, so I think it's time I moved up a level. I'll link to Ted's blog in the show notes, along with a couple of other things we mentioned along the way. In other news, the latest issue of Jim Kirkland's Pursuit of the Pale Prince newsletter landed in my inbox this morning. Loads of great stuff in there, as usual. The Elric Rise of the Young Kingdoms board game Kickstarter campaign. The Rodney Matthews 2023 calendar featuring all Mocock art. I've got mine already, it's glorious. News of a new Hawkmoon comic adaptation from France, and lots more. Jim also got an advanced reader's copy of The Citadel of Forgotten Myths, and he's bunged a review on Goodreads. I'll pop a link in the show notes. Before we go, thanks as ever to our patrons. First, those without tear. Anthony Paconti, Sebastian Weetabix, Tim Cardos, and Dave Dempster. Dave, a.k.a the aforementioned tentacled whisperer of secrets. I'll also link to him in the show notes. Next, our chaos engineers. Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Fred Keish, Jim Kirkland, John Lays, Jules Lawrence, Mal Pertwee, Matt Saltz, Menion, Nelbert, Paul McRandall, Simon Perrins, and Tony Malazzo. And of course our Jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Ian Stead, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Toby White, Tom Murphy, Mark Hebden, Graham Alden, and Jason Connolly. And of course, eternal thanks to our patron demons, Joe Monty, Clarky the Cruel, Andy Darby, Gareth Wilson, Imria, Janie Stim, Lapsed Gamer, Liam J, Miles Reed Lobato, Mortmain, Neil Burton, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, the OG patron Norman Beresford, and last, but of course never least, Robert McMillan. As it happens, Steve Round has been compiling recaps from his previous Stormbringer campaigns on his Cruising for Amusing blog. I'll link to them in the show notes too. He's also kicking off a new campaign, and next time we talk gaming, he's going to step into Darian Tom's to tell us all about it. Look forward to that, Steve. Okay. Don't forget... You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins@outlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. You can listen to Breakfast in the Ruins radio via the internet, most easily via Radio Garden. Just search BITR Breakfast in the Ruins or look at the Bradford UK blob on the Radio Garden map. We've got our Patreon page too, and there are a few extra bits and pieces on there. But in the meantime, take care. Stay safe, 
and we will meet again soon on the Moonbeam Roads. Thank you.